Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. And if you're joining us today for the very first time, we have been walking through the book of Revelation in a series, and we have some handouts that are going to be coming your way. We have our young men here going to be handing out some notes for you. We've uh, just adopted this strategy, particularly for the book of Revelation, just because there's so much material to cover. And we're going to read the book of Revelation, chapter 22, chapter 22. And we're going to read uh, the first 11 verses. So if you would turn there with me and just get yourself ready. I know there's a lot that's happening. So we'll let the notes go by. We'll let you find your place in the scriptures. And I'm going to pray. And we're going to, we're going to close out this series. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you've so graciously led us and you're so so faithfully leading us. You're leading your church at large, but on a local and on a particular level, we are are sensing the leadership of your spirit. And at times, I'm gonna be real honest with you, at times that's a little uh, little scary. At times it's a little uncomfortable. But yet, Lord, we are committed to following you. We're committed to following you as you shape our thinking and as you shape our hearts and as you shape us as a people. We're committed to saying yes, even when our our previous ideas and ideologies and our previous philosophies uh, run counter to something new you're showing us, God, we say yes. We ask that you would continue to mold and shape us to be a new wineskin people to be people that are pliable, to be people who have ears to hear and who have eyes to see, to be a people, Father, that in our storehouse we have treasures, both old and new, and we're able to skillfully handle the word of God, to bring instruction, to bring correction, to bring counsel, to bring comfort, and to bring rebuke when necessary as we follow the Lamb and as we live by the Spirit. So today, Holy Spirit, we ask once again, you would breathe upon the scriptures and you would breathe upon our hearts and minds. Cause us to understand the scriptures. Cause us to understand. Cause us to think theologically. Cause us to think accurately and soundly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 22 verse one says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. And then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because that time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. This is God's word. In your notes, I want to just do a very, very quick review, particularly for those who are joining us today for the first time. Uh, It's kind of like jumping into a movie and just catching the last 20 minutes and going, what's going on here? And who are all these people? And... And, uh, and why is that big burly guy yelling freedom? And what's up with that thing that's falling from his hand right now? I have no idea. It's a good movie, and I encourage you guys, if you want to catch up on the previous seven uh, messages that we've had, it's been riveting. Uh, you, can, you can find those on our podcast at antioch.is. We began this journey together in the book with the purpose of helping to see the church as the people of God. And that stands opposed to just seeing the church as a bunch of individuals or seeing the church uh, as a bunch of people who very simply have just been redeemed and forgiven and have their own privatized faith and relationship with God. Uh, The scriptures really advocate none of that. We want to help the church, us, the alternative community of the kingdom, understand that we are a people that we belong to God, that we belong to one another. And as such, we have received a commission from God to be faithful as witnesses to Christ and his kingdom. Number two, the purpose of this series was engineered to help equip us to read this book confidently, to read it confidently. And this morning, I'm going to share some things, hopefully that will help us towards that end as well. And then finally, we designed this series to help strengthen our faith in Jesus. And I, I shared this, this story or I shared this context earlier in the beginning of our series that as we were approaching election season and earlier in the summer, as I began reading some new material that uh, I've never read before, particularly along uh, the book of Revelation, I began to be challenged in so many ways. And uh, my fear of the book, my fear of the unknown, my disdain, my distaste for previous argumentation around the book began to dissipate, it subsided as I began to interact with um, understanding of some of the key theological themes in this book that really helped uh, calibrate my heart to what God is speaking and has been speaking throughout all of church history to his people through the book of Revelation. So my faith has been strengthened. And I've said this so many times that regardless of what happened on election day, my faith was in Jesus. And the book of Revelation has helped to galvanize that tremendously. The purpose of the book, not just the series, but why was the book written? We've discovered it was written to reveal Jesus. In the opening words of Revelation, it says that this is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have said repeatedly that if our focus is on anything or on anyone besides Jesus, we really are missing the purpose and the point for which the book was written. 
And secondarily, the purpose of the book is to encourage the church. It was essentially a pastoral prophetic letter that was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. They speak to the church throughout all of church history, past, present, and future. But they were written to encourage us, be faithful to Jesus. He's worth following. He's worth loving. He's worth serving till the very end, regardless of what the temptation or the persecution that opposes that faithfulness might be. Today, we're going to focus in on the purpose of identifying and understanding the various interpretive approaches to Revelation. And there's some some reasoning behind this. So we're going to talk about uh, how people have interpreted the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about some of its key theological themes that are relevant to the church in every generation. Now, when we first uh, storyboarded this series, uh, this message was initially titled, Leaving Behind, Left Behind. And I thought that was real cute and, and, and awesome. And, um, and we may touch on some of that a little bit, but that, that really is a much bigger topic that fits within a greater topic of scriptural interpretation. And so I've chosen to retitle this as our, our final installment here, as an invitation to greater pursuit. Today, my hope is that everything that has been communicated in the past two months and everything that I'm gonna share from the word and from my heart this morning will be an invitation for us to pursue God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the scriptures with greater tenacity and with greater faithfulness. My hope is that um, we have not sat back and resisted My hope is that over the past two months, there's been something inside of us that has been awakened, that there's been something inside of us that has stirred us, it has piqued our curiosity, it has been much like in the beginning of chapter four, verse one, where the angel said, come up here, come up here. There there are things that I know that you know not of, and they're mysterious, and they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're amazing, and guys, listen, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of this book, let alone the entire, the entirety of the scriptures. So let's talk here. It's going to be a little didactic today, and I apologize. Maybe I'll get a little preachy somewhere in here, but it's going to be a little, it's going to be a little professor, professorial. But uh, let's talk about some approaches to Revelation. Essentially, um, many commentators will say this. When it comes down to interpreting the book of Revelation, there really is this spectrum, this scale, this spectrum. And on this scale, on one side of the scale, you have what they call decoding, and on the other side of the scale, you have what's called actualizing. So what does decoding mean? It means that when we come, particularly to the book of Revelation, the idea of approaching it from a decoding perspective means that we're really getting lost in the details. We're not seeing the forest from the trees. We're, we're focusing in on, okay, who's the Antichrist and what do they look like and, and, and what, what, what does each of the seven horns represent? And, uh, and we're really trying to get down into numbers and we're trying to take a hard line, literal, detailed approach to every single um, aspect that is mapped out in the book. That's called decoding. And if you'll look here on your notes, it says we look for correlations between the text and specific events and people. That's very important for us to understand. 
Because as we'll get to here in a few minutes, one of the most popular interpretations of the book of Revelation, and really which has become an entire belief system in and of itself, takes a hard decoding approach to the book. And and if you'll notice right here, it says uh, later events and people in church history and or in their own time. So you'll see throughout, since the idea of dispensationalism came on the scene, Every generation has essentially looked at the book, of interp- or the book of Revelation and interpreted it, trying to find out what each of these details in the book are and carrying it into their own day and in their own time. So one example of this, and it's, it's a little comical, but you know, it, it, it just goes to show how we twist our hermeneutics and, and, uh, and we read the scriptures from, uh, from our own presupposition, our own lens, but there's parts in here that describe uh, different creatures and, and, uh, and they're in the midst of war. And so when you read this from a hard decoding perspective, I've heard commentators, or, and they're not really commentators, they're actually just biblical preachers, and they'll say, well, those are, those are um, helicopters. That's not a helicopter, it's a beast with the face of a lion. No, no, that's a helicopter because if you look at a helicopter long enough and hard enough, you can see that it looks like, the, like, like a lion that has a tail like a scorpion and clearly that's a helicopter because, no, that's, that's, that's an unfaithful interpretation or approach to the scriptures. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? On the opposite side of the spectrum, we have what's called a, an, an actualizing approach. And, and that means to, we're really looking for the spirit of the text. We're looking more for uh, what is the message of the book of Revelation as opposed to how do we get in here and how do we crack the code and, and unpack all the details and make sure they line up to the things that are happening in our generation. So one is a hermeneutic of correspondence. What's happening in the scripture that corresponds to what's happening in my day and time? And the other approach is what we call a hermeneutic of analogy. There's, there's, there's relationship, but there's not necessarily hardline translation of correspondence. Okay, within that huge spectrum, interpreters will focus on a, time, a timeline approach. So we have past, present, and future. So some people will read the book of Revelation and they'll say that the book of Revelation should be read primarily or even exclusively as just an ancient document, like a history book. So, and, and there's elements of that, that that are true. There's elements of that that are true. But you'll have people that take a hard line on the past perspective and they'll say, this really has no bearing on today and it has no bearing on the future. We should just read this essentially like we're reading a work from this time period, anywhere from 70 to 100 AD. And we should interpret everything that is happening in that historical context. Number two, or letter B, is a present interpretation or a present reading. And so some see it as a text that speaks above all to us today, or it speaks to any age. It speaks to every generation because it believes that the message is timeless. So a present interpretation of the book of Revelation understands that God had something to say, but much like all the scriptures, he has something to say to that people, but he has something that, that what he said to those people speaks to the church throughout all of the future of church history. And then there's a future interpretation, and this sees the book fundamentally 
as a set of predictions about the future. And again, this is one of the most popular approaches to see the book as a set of predictions about the future. So five interpretive strategies. Number one is the predictive approach. The predictive approach focuses on the future. And it sees the fulfillment of the tribulations, the millennium, the events, the people, the characters that are in the book of Revelation. They see that according to people in their own time. And I mentioned this briefly at one point during the sermon, but uh, almost in every generation of church history, you will find people on one side of the church identify people that are in their time period and try to peg them to be the Antichrist. At one point, even one of the greatest reformers, Martin Luther, was pegging the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, People pegged Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, world leaders and church leaders uh, who took a hard predictive approach. What they do is they try to find people that are in their time period and then assign them to people that are in the book of Revelation. That's dangerous. Um, And this particular approach increases it increases around major uh, timeline periods. So everybody remember Y2K, right? Y2K is when the predictive approach was on the tie. And that didn't just happen at the end of, at the end of you know, 1999. We're going to party like it's 1999. That happened in 999, all right? So any, and, and think about this, every four years, because it also happens during turbulent political events. So I know that a lot of you eight years ago, when your president of choice didn't get into office, yo, you guys were talking rapture stuff. I know you were. And there are some people on some part of the church that are talking rapture stuff now that Trump's elected. And some of you I know would be talking rapture stuff if Hillary got elected. I just know, I know you, I know you, I know the church. But this particular approach rises whenever we start seeing some form of political turbulence in the land. Two basic forms of this approach. One focuses on history. So what that means is uh, there are interpreters that read the book of Revelation and they see it almost as, almost as the book itself is a, a symbolic picture of world history. And so going all the way back to Genesis up until the current time that those interpreters read the book, they're reading the book again predictively, seeing themselves in the generation that is the culmination of the book. Does that make sense? The second approach is what we call, it's, it's more of an end times approach, and it focuses on eschatology, where it sees Revelation as primarily concerned about the end times. So, and, and when you think end times, you think revelation. When you think revelation, you think end times. That is a predictive approach to the book of Revelation, and sometimes it's called the futurist approach. Now, boy, time. Uh, there is a system of thought that has infiltrated the church and has really, for a lot of mainstream Christians, become the predominant subversive thought concerning the book of Revelation. Now, even without a ton of study, even without a ton of really digging into what uh, well-studied, well-researched biblical commentators and scholars are saying, the idea of dispensationalism was somehow in my psyche. And the idea of dispensationalism we're gonna unpack here in a minute deals with the idea of the rapture, 
deals with the idea of the end times. It deals with the idea of war in the Middle East. All of these things, the, the script for the, the, the last days, Armageddon, uh, this all belongs to a system of thought called dispensationalism. Well, let's find out what that is. Uh, first of all, we have to understand that this system of thought is only over a little 100 years old that we're not even talking about millennium of church history. We're talking about a system of thought that really is about 150 years old. And it began with a young girl who was in a revival service in Scotland and she had a vision. And in that vision, there was a tribulation. And in that tribulation, people were being uh, raptured out of that. She shared that with her pastor, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. And John Nelson Darby shared that with a number of his colleagues and as a result of him sharing this vision from this little girl in a revival service in Scotland, a man by the name of Schofield took this and printed a Bible. And in the Schofield Bible, what we find is that there is a language in the headings of the Schofield Bible that are not in Scripture. In the Schofield Bible, so you know how we all have our little references that describe the next pericope that we're going to read there in Scripture he would insert things like tribulation and rapture. And those words are not, they're not in. The rapture is not in the scripture. So he would insert that. And over time, what happens is people develop, by reading this, these commentaries, they develop a system of thought that aligns itself. And that's one of the ways that dispensationalism gained traction throughout the world. From there, it went down to Dallas Theological Seminary. It went up to Moody Bible College. They began teaching this system of thought. And then it was popularized primarily by Hal Lindsey with the late Great Planet Earth and then with the Left Behind fictional series. And one of the things, and we're, we, if we give time, we may get there, but we have to understand that the Left Behind fictional series is not just a fiction, it's not just a fictional work that peop, the, the authors of this were actually inseminating a theological worldview on their view of eschatology and the end times. Uh, the idea of dispensationalism, Roman numeral two, divides world history into a series of periods. So beginning in the book of Genesis, uh, they divide all of life and all of time in particular into these dispensations. And you may hear the word dispensationalism as it deals particularly with the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of the gifts of the Spirit. Because what some people will argue, this is very important, some people will argue that the, the gifts of the Spirit and the role of the apostles and the prophets were only for a particular dispensation. They were only for a particular time period. And once the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the apostles served their role in that particular dispensation, then there was no longer any need for that. This is how dangerous this idea of dispensationalism is. It is not scriptural. And as you can see, I'm clearly against this line of thought. Uh, Roman numeral three, the prophetic view, it insists that prophecy is actually history that has been written in advance. And this is how we project this onto the book of Revelation. The presupposition here very simply is, is that the book of Revelation has become an advanced DVD. It is history written in advance. We, we, there's nothing we can do. We simply have to wait to, 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 to see world events 
unfold for all of these catastrophic cataclysmic things to happen to us. And we're really pawns in the game is, is when you take that prophetic view, insisting, insisting that history has been written in advance. So then what happens is the prophetic passages constitute a script that will be played out to the letter in the end times. Uh, something important for us to understand is that because the book of Revelation does not justify this, dispensationalist thought will take scriptures from various parts of the Bible and they will put them together like a jigsaw puzzle in order to kind of justify their position. Let's take a look right here at Roman numeral five. Uh, one of the most popular notions of dispensationalist thought is what we call rapture theology. And there's a lot of information I have here, so I'm not gonna go too deep into it today. Um, but dispensationalists believe that the church will be mysteriously whisked up to heaven and this will happen particularly in the rise of very, very difficult times. This is why, and I've read it in scholarly works and I've read it in social media. Uh, this is why you'll actually hear people, and I saw this three or four weeks ago, people will say, hey, don't worry. We know things are gonna get really, really bad. We actually want an awful president to get in place so that wickedness will increase because that means we're getting out of here. It's awful. Um, and I've got pages and pages and pages on why rapture theology is dangerous and why it's wrong. And maybe I'll share, I can put those notes for you guys online if you're interested in looking at any of that. Uh, dispensationalists believe in what is called a two-stage or a double return of Jesus. So if you recall, when we were looking at Revelation 4.1, and Revelation 4.1, when the angel says to John, he says, come up here, come up here. Uh, dispensationalist interpreters see that as the rapture. Are you, you guys just, get, throw Revelation 4.1 up on the screen. <laughs> so we understand that in the beginning, in the prologue and in the beginning of the book of Revelation, we understand that there is an angel that shows up to John and then he, 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 he brings him into a vision. And it begins right here. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Well, dispensationalists say that's when the rapture happens, right there. And you'll notice they says that that happens right before Revelation 6 when all hell breaks loose. So things are gonna get real awful and God's gonna just, just destroy the earth because he's a really mean and angry God. But don't worry because God's gonna pull his church up out of that. But we just read in Revelation 22 at the end of the vision, John encounters the angel again and tries to worship him. And the angel says, hey, listen, don't worship me. The vision's over. Now it's time to get on with life and bringing the kingdom to the earth like I called you to do. Um, let me read this little snippet here. This is from uh, the cover of Tribulation Force, uh, which is one of the books in the Left Behind series. It says, in one cataclysmic moment, millions around the globe disappear. Those left behind face war, famine, plagues, and natural disasters so devastating that only one in four people will survive. Odds are even worse for enemies of the Antichrist and his new world order during the seven most chaotic years that the planet will ever see. Here's why this is dangerous, guys. This is dangerous because it affects global politics. 
uh, in the Reagan administration, there were actually people in that council that were encouraging us to go to war with Iran because it would set things off as a chain reaction in order to uh, hurry the coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. This, this is serious stuff. It has major, major ramifications. Uh, for rapture proponents, the stroke of midnight on the doomsday clock is inevitable, and it's even welcome. It's welcome. I mean, imagine this. Imagine the desire to escape difficult times so that everybody else who doesn't know Christ goes through very difficult times. That, that's not Jesus. That's not the heart of the Father. Um, listen to, and I'm not gonna mention this person's name, but chances are any of you guys who have been hardline dispensationalists have probably read this author. Uh, believers in Christ will escape doomsday, but mark it down and take it to heart and comfort one another with these words. Doomsday is coming for the earth, for nations and for individuals, but for those who have trusted in Jesus, they will not be present on earth to witness the dire time of tribulation. All right, let's take a look at some other approaches. The preterist approach. The preterist approach, so as opposed to the predictive approach, we're talking about five approaches. This takes a very hard line past contemporary historical approach to reading the book of Revelation. Again, you could even say this is a non-theological approach. People who take a hard line preterist approach really are not looking for predictive events in the future, and they're not even really looking for what God is saying today. They're almost just reading it like a history book. They see the meaning of symbols exclusively in their first century context. Now, from a hermeneutic standpoint, it is this, let me just, from a hermeneutic standpoint, which just means biblical interpretation, this always is our starting point. So when we read the parables of Jesus, when we read uh, the customs and the manners of the Old Testament, it's important that whatever is happening, we read it first, trying to get ourselves into the, the heart and the spirit and in the actual physical framework of those people in their cultural context. That is the starting point of biblical interpretation, application and prophetic insight flow from there, not the other way around. Number three, the poetic or the theopoetic approach. Now, if you guys have been paying attention over the past three weeks, you might, you might begin to see some of these interpretations in the messages that we've been preaching. The poetic approach uses mythical or poetic language, or it says that the book of Revelation uses mythical or poetic language to express truths about God. So we're less concerned in details, we're less concerned in, in uh, historical analysis, we're less concerned in futurizing, and we're more concerned with what is, what is the message that the poem is sharing, right? So like when we read a poem, we don't try to dissect and analyze every word in the poem, we're looking for the message in that poem. Uh, that's why I like certain movies and, uh, and that's why I don't like certain movies that Joe Schmidt likes because he can go, listen, I can understand the message of this movie and I go, none of these things make sense. I hate everything about this because I'm taking a decoding approach to the movie and Joe can go, I, I know what the message is and I love and embrace the message. Nice little in, inside banter there, Joe. Uh, one very, very well-known theologian, Eugene Peterson, labels the book of Revelation as a theological poem that does not call for decipherment as much as it evokes wonder. So this is an example of a poetic approach. 
the importance and truth of Revelation are not limited to its original connection with Rome, and it is not limited to its alleged correlation with specific future events. You understand what's, what's happening here? It's saying that it's not limited to either a preterist or a futurist interpretation, that there is something bigger and there's something more general that God is sharing. We're gonna talk about that here in a few moments. The next approach is the political or the theopolitical approach. And uh, if you were here when Jonathan preached on empire, that would be an example of taking a theopolitical approach to the book of Revelation. Uh, This interpretation sees the book of Revelation as a document of comfort in the midst of the oppression of empire. And even more particularly sees the book of Revelation as a message of protest against the spirit of evil in empire. It may focus on criticizing injustice. It may focus on anti-imperialism, promoting transformation and justice. And it speaks prophetically to the subversive nature of evil in the church and the world. Here's my favorite. The next one is the pastoral prophetic approach. The pastoral prophetic approach views revelation primarily as a document of Christian formation. How is the message here shaping us as disciples and followers of Jesus? And how are we responding to the book's call to be a faithful people, whatever the challenges of our unique context and our time in history may be? Revelation functions in the interests, this is one particular uh, theologian, he says it functions in the interest of spiritual purity single-minded devotion to God, and first commandment, faithfulness. These last three approaches are similar to one another and that they both go beyond mere correspondence to more timeless concerns. Let me read this from Michael Gorman. He says, the pastoral prophetic approach is bound very closely to both the poetic and the theopolitical. So if we read Revelation poetically, Everybody with me on this? I know I'm just blasting you with a lot of stuff here. If we read Revelation poetically, concluding that Babylon is not merely Rome and is definitely, it's not some future reconfiguration of the Roman Empire, as some futurists would say, then we understand that Babylon and its seductive and oppressive power can be felt and it must be named and it must be resisted in the political realities of our own day. All right, Uh, I'm gonna read here for you. Actually, I've printed up for you on page four. This right here is a brilliant, brilliant little chart. And at the top of this page, it says, common mistakes and corollary general principles of responsible interpretation. That's just fancy word for saying, on the left-hand side, these are some mistakes that people make in interpreting the book of Revelation. And on the right-hand side, these are the adjustments and the corrections. I'll pick out two or three and I'll let you read the others on your own. Let's take a look at number one, failing to recognize Revelation's apocalyptic character. Remember, that is a genre of literature. And the function of apocalyptic literature, what's the antidote? To understand 
In other words, do some study and do some research to understand this particular type of literature, which is symbolic, which is poetic, which appeals to imagination, and to understand its functional purpose of providing hope and encouragement. Let's take a look here at, um, at number three. Postulating arbitrary contemporary, that's too, too wordy, I'm not going to do that one. Let's look at number five. <laughs> number five, becoming preoccupied with sometimes misguided questions about the meaning of certain unknowable or less significant aspects of the book. Again, this is that decoding approach. And look at the antidote, to stay focused on the bigger thematic issues rather, on to, rather than on disputed details and letting revelation appeal to the disciplined, informed imagination about theological, spiritual matters. Okay, page number five. I'm gonna do a big chunk of reading here. I typically don't like to do this, but this was just too good to pass up. So we're gonna give an, another overarching overview of the theology of Revelation. We're gonna tie in all the messages that we've had in the past seven to eight weeks, and then I'm gonna conclude with giving and reminding us of the seven theological themes that we saw in Revelation, and then a, a call to move forward. So I'm gonna read here. It's at the top of page five. The theology of Revelation. As we have already noted, most people interpret the book of Revelation as a kind of advanced DVD of the end of the world. The focus of the book, they think, is eschatology, the last things. In a sense, of course, eschatology is indeed a focus of the last book of the Bible. But in a profound sense, eschatology is not the ultimate focus of Revelation. It's important. It's not the focus. Rather, as in the rest of Scripture, the eschatology we find in Revelation is a means to an end. Its intention is to give hope to people in trying and or tempting times, so that they will remain faithful to their covenant commitment to God. In other words, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its hearers and readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, or possible future suffering, whatever form that suffering may take, and whatever source it may have simply for being faithful. I want to reiterate that. Whatever form and whatever source that suffering may have. In spite of memory, experience, or fear, Revelation tells us that covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us and for the entire created order. Revelation, we might say, provides us with a vivid, imaginative, and prophetic call to an anti-assimilationist and life-giving Christian witness to, against, and within an immoral and idolatrous imperial culture of death. It does so not only by offering the hope of God's future salvation, but also by showing us that God is sovereign even now. The combination of that future assurance and the present reality of God's sovereignty means that life now should and can be lived as a life of worship and faithfulness to God and the Lamb. I just couldn't have put it better than that, so I thought, let me go ahead and write that down for everyone. And one of the reasons why we've given you these notes and one of the reasons particularly today I've included a lot more 
type within our notes as opposed to just the bulleted style outline it's because I feel like a lot of the information today is very, very important for our proper interpretation and for our future going forward in the book. So let me close with seven theological themes, some that we've hit on and some that we've not. And take heart, we are going to, uh, we're going to continue our journey in Revelation in the future of, uh, of us being a people of God. So number one, the throne. The throne is a major theological theme. We talked about that uh, in the beginning of our series. We talked about that in our, in our message on worship. And what's the point of understanding the theological theme of the throne? It's for helping us to understand that God reigns, that God and Jesus are the same, that Jesus is the redeemer, and that the way that he reigns is in a cruciform spirit, which very simply means a cross-centered, cross-shaped understanding of power. How does Jesus lead? How does he rule? He rules as a lamb. That's one of the purposes of the throne. Uh, Number two, the reality of evil and empire. And guys, listen, if you have not listened to that message by Jonathan, if you were not here by chance, I strongly encourage you to listen to that message on empire because not only was it incredibly enlightening, uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly relevant to where we are at today, but it's something that we're gonna see replay itself for the rest of our lives because evil and empire are a reality. Evil is real, empire is now So it's not just the reality of the Roman Empire in the historical framework of Revelation. It is the reality of empire today from a sociopolitical standpoint, but it's also the reality of empire in our hearts, the reality of the beast inside of us. Empire by nature makes seductive, blasphemous, and immoral claims and engages in corollary practices that bring disorder to human relations. It promises life, but it delivers death. It promises life. Much like the enemy in the garden of Genesis chapter three, he promised life, but he delivers death. And the spirit, listen, the political spirit, I'm not talking about the function of civil government. I'm talking about a spirit of politics does the same. It promises life, but it delivers death. Number three, the temptation to idolatry and immorality. We found this prominent in Jeffrey's message on the seven churches. And if you go back and you do a thorough analysis again of the seven churches found in Revelation two and three, you will find that the theological theme of how John was speaking as a pastor prophet to those churches to resist temptation to immorality and to resist temptation to idolatry. The Christian church is easily seduced by empire's idolatry and immorality because these claims and practices are often invested with religious meaning. Guys, this is massive. This is massive. This is the whole idea of civil worship. This is one of the inconsistencies uh, from the church and this is one of the critiques that most of the world has against the church in our previous election. It's right here in these words. I'm gonna read it again. We are seduced by empires, idolatry, and immorality because these claims and practices are often invested with religious meaning and authority and they become a civil religion. For that reason, immorality is ultimately idolatry. It's the idolatry of violence, oppression, greed, lust, humanity's ultimate inhumanity, which treats fellow humans as disposable commodities 
is a root attack on God as creator and redeemer. And we saw this, and if you've been following along with us in the book of Revelation, you see that one of the primary judgments is how at the end of the day, we began treating even our own people under the spirit of greed and idolatry and empire, we began treating people as commodities. And we do that in the church. And we do that in political systems. Don't be played. All right, number four. The call to covenant faithfulness and resistance. I love this one. In the midst of empire and civil religion, the church is called to resistance as the inevitable corollary of covenant faithfulness to God. It is a call that requires prophetic spiritual discernment. Prophetic spiritual discernment. Prophetic spiritual discernment. Prophetic spiritual discernment. Prophetic spiritual discernment is not naming candidates as God's choice. Prophetic spiritual discernment is calling the people of God to identify where the spirit of empire is in operation and addressing it in the spirit of love and truth and honor and calling us to remain faithful to the kingdom. That, my friend, requires way more spiritual discernment and courage. And it may result in various kinds of suffering. Number five, worship and an alternative vision. Why is worship so important? Why is the throne? Why is what we see happening in the realm of heaven, why is this so important? Because it gives us an alternative vision. The spiritual discernment that is required of the church requires an alternative vision of God and of reality. Many, you can look at the book of Revelation and say, this is a view of life through heaven's lens. It is a view of the world from the perspective of the throne of God. And we need this to remain faithful. It is this view of reality that unveils and challenges empire. It's a vision in need of the spirit's wisdom to see and imply. Revelation provides the vision of uncivil worship and vision centered on the throne of the eternal holy God and the faithful slaughtered lamb. Let me skip down to number seven and we're gonna close. Number seven, seventh theological theme is the imminent judgment and salvation, the new creation of God. Jonathan, if you will, come on up here. So if, uh, if you were here in the message before the Revelation series, when we closed out uh, the series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, we talked about the new heavens and the new earth, and that is a major theological theme in the book of Revelation. It speaks to the imminent judgment, and it also speaks to the salvation and new creation of God. I'm just gonna read this. God the creator and Christ the redeemer, they take evil and injustice seriously. So at any point, if you felt like, you guys can come on up, at any point, if you felt like we have taken a greasy grace or a sloppy agape approach, um, listen, God, God is violently opposed to sin. I wanna make this very clear. God is violently opposed to sin. He hates it. He does not hate people. He hates sin because sin is what separates us from him. And more importantly, sin is what drove his son to the cross. Sin was the impetus. Sin is the thing that the slaughtered lamb was, was suffered so violently for. 
So we cannot presume that we can just live the way that we want according to our own desires and not experience some form of the corrective discipline of God. Judgment is real. It is real, you guys. We need to see judgment through the lens of the cross. We need to see judgment not not from the lens just of these are all the things that I get to escape. We need to see judgment through the lens of these are the things that Christ suffered for me for. Christ the Redeemer takes evil and justice seriously. And he's about to come both to judge humanity and to save the faithful and to renew the cosmos. The will of God is for all to follow the lamb and participate in the saving life of God with us forever. How do we process all this? I've got a couple of quick conclusions. Number one, we need to understand that this series was not engineered as an exhaustive line-by-line exposition, but it has focused on key themes within the book of Revelation. So if we were expecting a kind of chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse, that's not why or how this series was engineered. Number two, the theological themes of the book of Revelation speak to us today. And they'll speak to the church in every generation, but this is applicable today. Number three, ideas have consequences. Why is it important that we understand what the scripture says? Because when we we begin to interpret the scriptures from our own starting point and not God's, those ideas have consequences. Those ideas have consequences like us not loving our neighbor. Those kind of escapist ideas have consequences like us not maturing because we don't take responsibility. Those ideas have consequences like us abandoning our true dominion mandate, which is not that we as Christians are going to conquer and destroy, but that we're called to love and serve and steward the earth. That's the dominion mandate. The the dominion mandate doesn't mean that we get to substitute responsibility for spirituality and in the end just rule over everybody. It means that we we get the privilege of caring for the created order. And we have to do that faithfully. Ideas have consequences. Guys, I appeal to you. I I charge you and I appeal to you. I reason with you. I plead with you today. Be a people that humbly and faithfully allow the Spirit of God to walk you through proper understanding of the Scriptures. Be a people that don't just lock in and double down on your orientation. Be a people that listen to a broad range of ideas and to a broad range of theological positions. And the Holy Spirit is faithful to lead you into truth. I promise you. I promise you. In conclusion, this is going to lead us to the table. The book of Revelation ends... In much the same way that the Old Testament ends, you know, all the books of the Old Testament lead us, lead the people of God to this idea called Advent. What is Advent? We're going to explain this more next week because next week begins Advent season. But Advent very simply means an anticipation of arrival. The people of God in the Old Testament, they were longing for the arrival of the Messiah. And he came. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as the Messiah to redeem humanity back into its proper relationship and to its proper purposes with God. Many people missed it. Some people saw it, many people missed it. We are in this amazing season of time where we are actually in between Christ's coming and his second coming. We are in, again, a place of Advent. We as the people of God in our hearts carry the spirit inside of us that says, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for your arrival. We long for your return. We long for you to make all the things wrong and we long for you to make them right. Guys, there are social evils and injustices in the earth and we we need not to ignore them or turn a blind eye. We need to cry out for his kingdom to come and for him to come. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's stand to our feet this morning as we come to the table of the Lord. I think the call for us today as the people of God, I think the call for for us is to remain faithful. I think the call for us today is for us to respond to the prophetic invitation of God to come higher and to come closer. And I think the prophetic invitation for us today is to prepare our hearts for the Lord's arrival, to prepare our hearts for Advent, the coming of our King. Where we are at work, we are busy. We are responsible and we are yearning for his kingdom's arrival through us and for our king's arrival onto 